it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hello, welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. So glad you're here. one 408 And back after the weekend, back in action. I'm sure you saw a lot of the action that took place uh, over the weekend in politics, which I'm sure you have a passion for. Uh, today, the President of the United States will be busy saluting the International Association of Firefighters. That's an opportunity to get some votes. Yeah, for the most part, they're not usually in his camp. This hour, going to be joined by Stephen Krakauer. Go inside the medium. Uh, the media, with he's the author of Uncovered, how the media got cozy with power, abandoned its principles, and lost the people. So uh, before we get to Brit Hume, let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Right at the get-go, Dr. Fauci gets an email from Dr. Christian Anderson, which says virus looks engineered, virus not consistent with evolutionary theory. That same day, Dr. Fauci organizes a conference call. All these other virologists, they get on there, and three days later, everybody changes their story. That is a little of what's going to be unfolding this week as we go inside the origin of COVID-19. It's coming into focus how Anthony Fauci got the lab leak theory squelched. Until recently, he commissioned a memo that concluded it started at a wet market. But Why? Culpable, perhaps? If so, we got to get to the bottom of this and try to come to grips with our number one foe, China. Number two. I think it's a warning sign for the country. Uh, Eric Adams has been talking about public safety, not only on the campaign trail, uh, but for the first year. I showed up at crime scenes. It is really stating that this is what I have been talking about. America, we have to be safe. All right, lessons learned, perhaps, between Joe Biden helping block D.C.'s pro-criminal reforms to the loss of Lightfoot in Chicago as mayor. The message being sent by Americans is that criminals are wrecking this country. Fix it or you're out. We'll discuss. Number one. We will evict Joe Biden from the White House. We are never going back to a party that wants to give unlimited money to fight foreign wars. It's insane that Joe Biden has gotten a free pass for this socialist spending spree. That's a, uh, some of the give and take over the weekend. 2024 really got underway. They pulled the trigger on the starting gun as all the big names subtly shadow boxed each other and gave clues to their battle plan for President Moore. We will lay it out. As 62% of the people voting at CPAC, what for President Trump? Does that surprise Britt Hume? Britt, welcome back. Hi, Brian. Nice to hear from you. Oh, uh, same here. Always great to have you on. I just thought, I really feel like it kicked off this weekend to a degree as uh, Nikki Haley went at Trump. Mike Pompeo went at Trump. Trump began to try to associate DeSantis with Paul Ryan and Jeb Bush. We had Governor DeSantis taking on Gavin Newsom. Do you get that sense? Yes, I, I think that's about right, uh, Brian. But uh, so far, it's it's been, they've been pretty gentle, except for Trump. He's never gentle with with his criticisms um, with each other. And you know, this is a we're at a very early stage here. Uh, I'm not surprised at all by the 62 percent that uh, Trump got in the CPAC straw poll. Uh, CPAC has become the Trump fan club. No kidding. Uh, And where Nikki Haley got booed a little bit. She heard some cat calls as if she's from another party. Although I give her credit, she went to club for growth. 
evidently did not invite President Trump, and she went to CPAC. Same with Tim Scott, went to both. But listen to what Chris Sununu said on Meet the Press, cut three. I've learned that you can't tell people not to run. If someone really wants to run, they're going to run, and that's fine. But unlike 2016, I'm going to make sure, and I think other folks are going to make sure, that we all have the discipline to get out uh, before it's too late. And those that don't, uh, I think, will be chastised very publicly for doing so. But i got to be honest. I've talked to all the candidates. They all understand that. They really do. Um, we're going to take our time. There's still a lot to play out over the next nine months. I think that he's trying to say is they don't want President Trump. He also went on to say that he doesn't think Trump's going to get the nomination. So you get the sense that I get the sense that Trump's win in the last five polls looks strong at CPAC. He certainly has the endurance. He looks like he lost weight. I mean, do you think you can rule out Donald Trump at this point? No, I don't think you can rule him out. Uh, he's in the poll position. Um, you know, he's ahead in the polling. But but his margins, uh, even in the CPAC straw poll vote, which was less than his margins uh, in that very same straw poll in previous uh, years. So uh, I think he's lost some altitude, but he's still up there pretty high. And you know he's not somebody who I think is going to fold or fade particularly. He'll be able to raise all the money he needs. Uh, he'll still, he has his core base of support, which isn't going away. And so he'll be able to stay in it for a long period of time. Somebody is going to have to just is going to have to beat him. And if it's a splintered field, the, you know, on paper at least, it would look like that very much to his advantage. And, of course, with all these people either getting in or, or at least uh, acting as if they're going to get in, a splintered field looks like what we're going to get, which is what Chris Sununu is warning against. Yeah, you're so interesting. With all the experience you had of people that are friends and ran against each other, that work with each other, we're going to look at a vice president, I think, running against his former boss, president, running mate, Mike Pence. We're going to look at a former secretary of state, head of the CIA, running against the former president in Mike Pompeo, the former U.N. ambassador. So they all agree with Trump on a lot of things, but they're beginning to separate. I thought this was noteworthy. Mike Pompeo cut 10. I was talking about the time to elect serious leaders who are thoughtful, who speak about America as the most exceptional nation in the history of civilization. They're not denigrating it. They're not they're not throwing out whoppers. They're not spending all the time thinking about Twitter. That's what I was speaking to. It's the moment for celebrity. The moment for stars is not with us. So, I mean, how could that not be about Trump, right? Well, he said it wasn't, of course, or he said it, he wouldn't acknowledge that it was. Um, I think it's unmistakably about Trump. Here's what he did specifically, cut 12. We are $31 trillion in the hole. We've got to begin to grow the economy, build it back with lower taxes. And when we do that and grow our economy, we'll get it right back right. It's going to take a true conservative leader, Shannon. Are you saying that President Trump wasn't a true conservative leader? $6 trillion more in debt. Uh, that's, nev- that's never the right direction for the country. And Nikki Haley said something similar. Is, he vul- is Trump vulnerable there? Well, yes, he's vulnerable on a number of counts, which is why he's lost altitude. He's vulnerable for his behavior after the election. He's vulnerable on on running up the debt. He's got vulnerabilities, and of course, you know, people may be in a mood to turn the page, to move on from this generation of leaders. That includes Biden and Pelosi and even McConnell, uh, and certainly, therefore, Trump. Trump is way up in his 70s. Um, you know, so I think it's he's got a lot of vulnerabilities, which is not to say he, he can be beaten, which is, but it is to say he can be challenged. So, so, you know, Al Gore, when he lost, he didn't run again. John Kerry lost, didn't run again. Mitt Romney lost, didn't run again. 
so we're not used to this, you know. Uh, so can you put it in perspective? Does this remind you of anything that you remember covering? No, well, I, I didn't start covering presidential politics until, you know, like the late 60s. Um, and so nothing like that has happened in my experience. Um, you know, people who, who, who win and then lose or lose in the beginning normally do not run again. Uh, and it hasn't happened in a long time, and I, you know, I'm. It's usually not the, it's not a blueprint for victory, but, but there he is, uh, head up and banners flying with a lead in the polls. So I got to switch over to COVID and the origins. You know, the FBI and Energy, uh, the Department of Energy came out with conclusions uh, to a degree that best they know, with for the information that they have, that this virus came from a lab. Now we find out that Anthony Fauci immediately last Monday, by the way, hopped back on TV and says none of the data shows it came from a lab. Now we find out a memo was generated at his request to say it came from a wet market, from a natural occurrence. And we find out that a few to six days later, he's standing next to President Trump saying data revealed in a study shows that this came from a wet market. What does that tell you about what, uh, where we should go with this investigation and why somebody who, if he's not responsible, is so invested in this not being a lab leak? Well, to some extent, I think the argument could be made that he was indeed responsible because his agency was funding research at that Wuhan lab indirectly, but nonetheless funding it, uh, that involved um, gain of function, which means strengthening a virus, um, testing it. Now, look, the purpose could have been innocent, so you'd know better how to fight it. But on, just common sense tells you that the lab leak is a very plausible theory, and it should there never should have been the effort that was made to shut it down. And you have to suspect at least that Fauci, responsible to some extent for 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 this research, didn't want it to get out that he was, and didn't want to be blamed for this pandemic. Standing next to President Trump in February, uh, he said um, he commissioned this. Uh, paper. Eight weeks later, Fauci stood next to President Trump at the White House press conference and said evidence that the lab leak theory was implausible while pretending it had nothing to do with him. And then on April 17, 2020, asked if the virus could have come from a Chinese lab where a group of highly qualified evolutionary vir- virologists looked at the sequence in bats. They evolved there. Um, he said, no, he doesn't see how it could have happened. What I think is the worst that happened from here, you know, you have McCary saying one thing, Fauci saying another, and, you know, you someone else come on, uh, Bhattacharya, whatever it is, and we, we debate it, we go over it, and I think that's what you, how you usually cover a story. But I think the thing that's different about this, the vilification, the YouTube taking down uh, congressional testimony about therapeutics, the consternation, the bad, the shadow banning that took place, that's what really made everything worse, Brett. The debate stopped. Entirely. The anger grew. I agree entirely, Brian. And we're on a very dangerous course in this country now. We have a long tradition in this country of free speech. And the theory behind free speech is not that there won't be objectionable speech or even false speech. The theory of it is that when when people can all have their say and information can be brought forward and arguments made, even false statements made, that out of that out of that uh, welter of discussion and, and argument and debate can come a, a sensible conclusion, 
wise decisions by voters, wise decisions by policymakers, that that is the way to get where we've always to where we've always been, and it's the best way. And we are straying from that now and trying to, to, to know from the start when a debate is going on what the truth is. We often don't know, and we found that out on COVID time and time again. And yet the, the, the suppression of what people thought were objectionable views continued. It, and it was a very grave mistake, and I hope we don't continue to make it, although there are signs that we are, because all this misinformation, disinformation, work that's being done is just another it's just a euphemism for censorship and censorship is deadly in a democracy so i'm if i could just tap into your foreign policy knowledge again i'm watching condoleezza rice two weeks ago and she said and if i could just paraphrase it's folly to think that we don't want to worry about russia and ukraine because we want to focus on china she essentially says it's one and the same they're supporting this conflict they might even get more involved in this conflict and the partnership that they have shows they have similar objectives do you see a separation between China and Russia? Well, yeah, they're not identical, but they, but they, you know, they, but they are, in some loose sense, allied, and maybe more strongly allied than before. And it is a danger. But look, I think that uh, the reason to worry about what Russia is doing in Ukraine is because it is a test of the West, is a test of resistance to this kind of imperial uh, uh, ambition that uh, Putin has. It is a test of the willingness to resist this kind of brutal aggression. And if and if the United States and its allies succeed in turning back Russia in Ukraine, the message to China will be clear. We are not pushovers. When the when the chips are down, we are and will be united, and it and it would be a grave mistake to to test that in Taiwan or anywhere else. That's the message I think it sends. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if we don't do that, China says, "Well, they're weak. They'll fold. We can do what we want." That's oversimplifies, but that's a, that's the thought. And they're, they're really the the cause. I think is genuine. I think it's needed. I get them what they need to be successful. And the president, or if he's not not good at speaking or effective, find somebody that can speak regularly on the need for it to explain to the average person where this money's coming from, where, what it's doing, and how it benefits America. Speaking once every state of the union is not going to cut it. It makes it harder for the people who feel he's doing the right thing, but he can't, it doesn't even go, over, go out of his way to defend it. Yeah, I, I think that's right, Brian. I think that the important thing to understand here is that American people will be patient with a military undertaking or or supplying of military equipment, even at great expense, if they see a course to success. And the President Biden has said repeatedly that we will be in this with Ukraine as long as it takes. But the question is, will it be as much as it takes? And will it be soon enough to give Ukraine the advantage it needs to turn back this Russian aggressing, uh, aggression? Yeah. That's that's the question. As long as it takes, okay. But as much as it takes, that's the case has to be made for that, and the action has to be taken. Well, you know, just, uh, just to cut into that, uh, the Ukrainians don't like that phrase because they know, and if it's a game of endurance, the Russians have more people, even though they have more. They're better fighters. They They're more driven. It's their land. But the Russians will outlast a long war. That's why an American people are going to get tired of it. They got to do it this year, in my opinion. Uh, Britt, thanks so much. Always great. My my pleasure, Brian. Always good to talk to you. All right. Listen, that was uh, the great Britt Hume setting the table for the week. one 408 I'm going to go back and take your calls. And then Steve Krakauer inside the media, media and so much more. Don't move.
Learning something new every day on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. He's the front runner. Uh, it's interesting. July 21, he was 70% at CPAC. At August 22 in Dallas at CPAC, he was 69, and now he's 60. So there's a slight diminution in his support. 62. He's not going to want to give up the two. E- even among even among his this, and this is Trump fest. Let's be clear about it this. It is. I mean, this is totally Trump fest. But look, he's the front runner, and the question is going to be: Is he going to be the front runner? Uh, in uh, early 2024, or is he going to be slipping in some of the early states? Uh, yeah, we'll see what happens. Iowa, I don't think he won Iowa the first time. Then he goes and wins New Hampshire. Then he takes South Carolina. Now, in South Carolina, he's going to have Tim Scott, and he's going to have Governor Nikki Haley to deal with. That's going to be tough. If it goes to New Hampshire, you might have Chris Sununu to deal with. That'll be tough. In Iowa, I think he is a big Republican state more than ever. I'm not sure. But the thing is about Donald Trump, the one thing about him, you cannot say uh, his speeches were bad. You cannot say, man, he looks old. In fact, he looks thinner than he did before. His stories, we heard a lot of his stories, but they apply to the headlines. So it's not a matter of him going back in 2016 and talking about what states came in. It doesn't really help you. When he talks about the border, what they did, when he talked about Bagram, what he would have done, then people have a debate on what really happened. He's going to have people behind the scenes like Mike Pompeo saying, no, that's, that's really not what took place. It's going to be interesting because... If he does get the nomination and he does actually win, they're all going to want to work with him. The one thing about Matt Gates over the weekend says to fund the FBI and all federal agencies. Is there a dumber thing somebody could say? Or Marjorie Taylor Greene's we need a national divorce? I mean, these are, these are just idiotic statements by irresponsible lawmakers looking to, I guess, fundraise or become more famous or try to kiss up to Donald Trump, who got some good news. Another billionaire businessman, this guy. Uh, Ike Permutter, Permutter. Uh, he looked like he was going to go to DeSantis. He knows both of them. It looks like he's going to go and finance the Trump campaign. Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders was on a phone call with President Trump. He now denies. And Trump said, would you just come out and endorse me? And she said, no. Uh, she said, she was, she said um, according to two people briefed on the discussion, was asked not to be named, discussed the private call. Trump was disappointed but not angry in response to the call. When she said she would now endorse him. Not yet anyway. So he's looking to get as many endorsements as possible in a very popular Republican field. I love this stuff. It's going to be fun. On Wednesday, I'm going to be doing a one-on-one with Governor DeSantis uh, where he grew up. And we'll be out and about in Tampa.
the talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Steve Krakauer's got a brand new book. It's called Uncovered. Uh, Steve, uh, his book is on sale right now. Uh, and basically, it is a book that goes inside the media and how it got broken. And a lot of it has to do it got broken by Donald Trump. But, of course, Steve, your perspective is from the inside. And now you analyze from what you saw on the inside. Now that you kind of on the outside, correct? The subtitle, How the Media Got Cozy with Power, Abandoned Its Principles, and Lost the People. Where would you get this idea to put the book together? Yeah, Brian, I, 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 as you mentioned, on the outside now, I was, I was kind of that media insider. I, was, I worked at CNN. I worked at NBC. I was a media reporter for several years. And then for the last nine years, I've been literally outside of that Acela corridor in New York and D.C. I'm living in Dallas now. And frankly, it really was after Trump's election, not necessarily that in and of itself, but in seeing the reaction that the media had, how shocked they were by what happened, because they just didn't, you know, a lot of people in those newsrooms didn't even know anyone who would potentially support Donald Trump. Well, I knew people down in Dallas who were not overly ideological who voted for him. And so what what did they miss? And I actually put together a proposal at the time. I called in all my favors to CNN, ABC, NBC, CBS, and I met with executives at all those places in April of 2017. I said, you know, here's like a three-page proposal. They've got blind spots. How can we get back and reconnecting with an audience that, you know, clearly has lost the trust and lost some perspective. And there was a little bit of interest, but ultimately uh, everyone, everyone passed on that idea. And that really formed the basis of this book, because I do think that that really was the starting point in a lot of ways. We saw, we saw this with the COVID lab leak theory, Hunter Biden's laptop, Jeffrey Epstein, I write about in the book, all of these stories, the corporate press botched in such massive ways and trying to get at why that is, what they missed, and then why they choose to suppress information rather than open it up and allow the public to get information just displays this total lack of trust in the public and the public in, in turn lacks the trust in the, in the media. And that's a huge, huge problem. Yeah, there's so many different incidents that you point out. First off, your background. You were at CNN when? I was there from 2010 to 2013. I started working for uh, Piers Morgan, uh, who who now is is with Fox. Uh, it's been it's been a little run uh, for both of us there in terms of uh, changing in, from the corporate media structure of the CNNs of the world. Um, and then I oversaw a lot of the uh, the the basically television as it lived on digital during the 2012 election. Worked closely with Jeff Zucker in 2013 and. You know, it really was a very different CNN. I mean, it wasn't that long ago, and there was valid criticisms of CNN at the time. But the way it shifted in just a few short years, by 2015, 2016, was like a completely different place than when I worked there. So John Klein, who I remember, he's a historian, yeah. he's written a lot of great books, including one on Steve Jobs. He was running things at CNN. How was it different from Jeff Zucker? So I, I actually lay out in Chapter 6 of the book my what I think kind of my diagnosis of what happened with the Jeff Zucker era, because I worked closely with Jeff and I like Jeff. And Jeff kind of had this mentality that there was a one story, one story mentality for the news, right? So when there was a Boston bombing, we put all of our resources towards that story and covered it with immense time. And then, and then there were some criticisms of, say, the poop cruise or the missing plane and the amount of resources that we put towards stories like that. And in some ways, I, I understood the journalistic principle. People kind of check into cable news and check out. So if you can put everything behind it. People can know this is what's most important. But then came Trump. And look, Jeff Zucker it was 
closely associated personally with Donald Trump. I mean, he went to Trump's wedding in 2005. He was, you know, in many ways, they made each other at NBC. Celebrity Apprentice was a huge hit for Jeff Zucker's NBC at the time. And so it was personal. And then Trump became this turncoat. And, and then Jeff, I think, you know, actually believed that he was in this existential fight with Donald Trump. And, and it was mutually beneficial. Financially, it was good. Personally, it was, a, it was this battle that could be waged every day. And that really, when they, when they made that fight with Trump, the single story, the one story, that really turned the, the network into something that it wasn't before. At the very least, there was this principle of journalism first, objectivity, the news, and maybe it was boring and maybe it was, you know, people were not huge CNN fans, but at least when news happened, they could trust it. And then it became much more ideological and much more partisan. And that is now obviously Jeff's gone. Chris Licht's there. Now they're trying to dig themselves out of that hole, I think, not not just the 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 success of it, not just financially, but perception-wise. Can CNN regain that feeling of being the news? It's a very hard thing to now turn that ship around because they really went off the rails in terms of the standards and practices that were there during the Trump era. All right, so so he was there. Obviously, he was talking to Trump, even helping him during the debate. They had some of that audio there. Trump said that I recommended him to the head of CNN before he got it. You should hire this guy. And he feels, oh, he he turned on him or where Trump turned on Zucker, whatever. It doesn't even matter. But you do talk about Zucker telling uh, telling you to yell more. Right. He told and you also talk about an interaction with Don Lemon says, why really? Why can't we tell voters who to vote for? Yeah, this was actually Salima Zito uh, that that gave this amazing story. I, I talked to 26 people on the record in the book, so everyone puts their name to it. I, I no anonymous sources. And Selena was hired by Jeff Zucker right after the 2016 election. And, you know, she's someone who uh, from the New York Post, you know, she she really got the mood of the country in a way that CNN didn't. So they, they brought her in. And at first they, she was welcomed there. But then within a few weeks, it went from tell us what the voters think to why would the voters think this? How how could they possibly believe these lies? And she's like, I don't know. I'm a reporter. And then, yes, Jeff Zucker telling her to yell more. And then she just completely got sidelined. I mean, for, for years, for the length of her contract. And there's stories like this. And I, I appreciate, you know, Selena's perspective here because she's someone who journalism first wants to to help the corporate press you know, fix these blind spots and was sidelined because there was a total lack of introspection. And I, and I lay this out in case after case, not so we can just you know, go and rehash the history. But so the, the, the public can understand this is what happened. This is why it happened. And next time, you know, we don't need the corporate press to, to be the, the gatekeepers anymore. Here's the tools to sniff out when the press is lying or misleading in the future. So interesting. Uh, so as things start uh, galvanizing, Trump accelerated anything wrong with media. He accelerated all the bad at these networks. They were obsessed with him. In fact, anything he did good, they would just flip and find something with Russia, find something with his finance, go find, a, you know, a Michael Cohen situation. Why yeah. was that? I mean, was it purely for ratings or they just despise this guy? I think it was a combination of things. It was financial in some ways, but I do think that also there was personal elements to it. I mentioned Jeff Zucker being at his wedding, but go down the line, Gail King, Chris Matthews. I mean, he was part of that world in, a, in a many ways, you know, it, it, the, 
he, by being part of that world, by knowing, I mean, he hosted SNL in November of 2015. He was taking selfies with Al Sharpton. Go, he was in that world, and then he turned on that world, and he exposed that world. And that is something that when they really felt the power that they had slipping away and being exposed, that they really reacted poorly to. I describe it as an addiction. Uh, I mean, I think that the many in the media became addicted to that Trump phenomenon and the fight that they believed that, that they were that they were actually in. And that leads to bad decisions. That leads to bad practices. You mentioned I, 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 it goes beyond Trump. In fact, I think it's gotten worse since he left office. This idea of narrative over facts. We see this with so many COVID-related stories, and we're seeing it now just play out with the lab leak theory. That there's still the laptop, the getting, lab leak, all that oh, stuff. Even now, as we get clear evidence that that they, they they completely botched the story at the time, the lab leak theory in 2020, the, the laptop in October 2020, every right down the line, there's still a real resistance to going and explaining to the audience how they got that wrong, why they got that wrong, and correcting the record. And why is that? Because it's not just that they got the stories wrong, like the Hunter Biden laptop story saying, oh, it's this instead of that. It's that they will put their their fingers on the the suppression tools in partnership with tech platforms in partnership with the government to make it so that people couldn't get information couldn't even hear other perspectives that is almost too embarrassing to now go back and correct the record because that's completely abdicating their responsibility as journalists who are supposed to be about free speech and the free flow of ideas in the first amendment so a couple of things you open up with your book and you say you know when walter cronkite was uh, the lead anchor uh, and the network news was the place to go, and local news mattered so much. 70% of the people trust the media. And then it went down to 50%. Now it's down to around 30%. And part of it, yeah. you believe, has to do with local media. It doesn't have the financing uh, that it used to have. It seems to be, uh, it seems to be uh, just wallowing. And the yeah. local media, as you bring up, was uh, the benefits were their kids played went to school with everyday people. They went and coached baseball uh, baseball teams. They'd be in society. They knew the town. So they knew the exactly. legitimate issues. So therefore, people could relate to them. And now people stay in D.C., Los Angeles, not us. Do you, you know that to be the case? Because we right. know our audience is not in D.C., New York, and, and California. But that's where the, most of these media outlets are, and they've lost touch with the rest of the country. Yeah, Brian, it's not ideological. I, I think that's that's what's that's what often is missed in media criticism these days is it's it's about a connection to a community and how out of touch the, the general corporate media has become. Because you look at the these polls of, of trust and yes, all time lows, poll after poll, but it's not just the Republican line and the Democratic line stays where it is. The independents, people that are not ideological, are not particularly interested in politics, just want to get the, the news. We just want to understand what's happening in the world. They're busy. They've got lives. They've got families. They go outside. They don't spend all day on Twitter. These people want just a place to turn to to get their news, and that has completely fallen off a cliff. The independent line has dropped in most polls by 50 percent from just 2017 in trust in the media and particularly TV news like legacy media, CBS, ABC, NBC. That's a huge problem. And I don't think it's because necessarily of politics. It's because, as I lay out in the book and story after story, particularly with COVID, I think COVID was a huge, huge factor with this in the more recent years. There is a total 
misunderstanding about the country that this that the the press on a national level purports to cover. And yes, the decline of local media is a huge harm to that trust as well. And you also talk about the business model. You said something about the business model, the the broken financial incentive structure. What do you mean by that? Yeah, that's one of the the five problems that I lay out the book in the book. In in the old days, places like I, I you know ESPN is a case study I talk about in the book. Uh, you know CNN, the New York Times, these were giant corporations that there could be good years and there could be down years, but for the most part, they had a steady business structure. They understood the business model. They were going to print money no matter what. That has now changed, and I think the reason that's changed is partially because we've seen this rise of independent media. That's not just taking away viewers, but it's taking away real influence and power. I mean, they are really fearful of Joe Rogan. Why is that? I mean, I, I write in the book uh, and talk to people like Marty McCary and others about the Joe Rogan Sanjay Gupta moment that happened when Sanjay Gupta went on Joe Rogan's podcast and actually had a pretty good interview. But then Sanjay Gupta goes to his, you know, consensus media home of CNN and trashes Joe Rogan in a completely ridiculous way. It's because they're really fearful of it. And if the financial structure was safe, it was still steady, then they wouldn't happen. That, then the mistakes that we're seeing, the bad decisions we're seeing, it wouldn't happen nearly as much. But instead, the executives at these organizations are panicked because they are actually feeling for the first time that there could be real fundamental existential threats to their business. And now bad decisions start getting made in that void. Yeah, and Joe Rogan, by the way, I even heard him a couple of days ago. He's still ticked off at CNN as they call you know, as he's trying to recover from COVID. Did not want to get vaccinated clearly, and he took ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine or whatever he took. They said, "Well, Joe Rogan is taking horse um, horse medication." And right. so, what do you horse do you warmer? And he said, "That's totally not true. This is a award winning uh, therapeutic that also is used on horses, just like a lot of medicine from prednisone on down is used on humans as well as dogs. That has nothing to do with it." And he sat there and he said, "They know this is not true. No one even yes. called to see if he's getting better. Know what the story was? Why did I get better in two days? And other people are dying in a hospital. No, they just wanted to marginalize him. And that was a that was a learning moment for him. And when Sanjay Gupta comes on." Joe Rogan politely roasts him. And for him to come back now that Rogan's gone and then try to kill him on CNN with their, you know, 800,000 viewers as opposed to his 20 million, I thought just really showed what they're about. It, it was story after story like this. It, it was not just, you know, in ivermectin and these, these other treatments, which, again, yes, has been taken by hundreds of millions of people, of humans over the years, not for COVID, but for other, other you know, uses. Uh, yes. And then you look at masks, you look at vaccines, you look at uh, lockdowns. Uh, I, I talked with Dr. Jay Bhattacharya in the book about the way that he was treated by the corporate press because of the way that Fauci and others and Collins spun them into making him demonizing the Stanford doctor, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, over a very reasonable proposal that has been clearly proven right over time. But that's that's also one of these these big eye openers. I think we see this now every time we get more information, the science, as we as we learn more and more about the science of COVID, we see that the corporate media consensus coverage was not just wrong, but was 
clearly pushing out other points of view that obviously have now been proven right. Why was that? Why did they do that? And in some ways, it was fear in the early days of the pandemic. But in other cases, it was because they just didn't trust the public to tell them the truth about these stories, the nuance, the complicated nature. None of these are black and white. Because of that lack of trust, it's becoming more and more clear. And as I lay out and uncovered, there's that, that particular moment in time, these last couple of years, has proven that the media doesn't trust the public, and and I think the public understands that. Steve Krakauer, thanks so much. It's all in your book, uh, Uncovered. Appreciate you joining us. Hey, Brian, great talking to you. Appreciate it. Yep, how the media got cozy with power. Uh, listen, when we come back, I'll take your calls, finish up this hour. Hope you had a great weekend. Want to find out the details? Brian Kilmeade Show. Educating. Entertaining. Enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. A new trend among younger workers is bare minimum Monday, in which they do as little as possible on the first day of the work week. While a new trend among World War II veterans is realizing their sacrifice meant nothing. Yeah, I I mean, the, the whole Saturday Night Live was so ridiculous. They used Fox and Friends in the cold open, and it was totally... It was terrible. It was absolutely terrible. I mean, there was a time when you appeared on Fox and Friends when they would do it. Uh, I would get text messages in the middle of the segment. So if I'm not watching or if I happen to watch, it is huge news, right? If people are uh, watching it in the studio and they notice setting up for Fox and Friends, I used to get text messages. Now this whole thing airs. I Not one person texted me to say they portrayed you on Fox and Friends. Number one, they have an Asian guy. I mean, are you even trying? Uh, are you even trying to uh, to imitate somebody? Number two, the topic was just ridiculous. Out of all the issues going on, it's amazing to me that they ju- they've become as political as MSNBC. Well, I mean, they've sort of been. I will say the weekend update has been getting a little funnier as of recently. I will also say this. Everything's black and white. Everything's race. White guy, black guy, white guy, black guy. We actually have a lot. Well, you'll hear them throughout the week that we have like a bunch that we can uh, we'll be uh, bring in. Yeah. But um, I will say this just to go against your point with the Asian guy. As long as you're an actor and have good like they can sort of like make fun of you in a good way with like the way you act. But they can't. Don't even try. No. They just want to make I I don't know. They just want to make you seem like a bad news person. I don't know. It's their impression of what Fox is, but they've never actually watched themselves. Exactly. News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest moment of the Brian Kilmeade Show. Coming to you from 48th and 6th in Midtown Manhattan. Heard around the country, heard around the world. Uh, we have a lot to discuss this hour. Michael Goodwin standing by from the New York Post. Stephen Hadley, the National Security Advisor under George W. Bush. He's going to be joining us now to put in perspective. I don't believe there's a difference between China policy and Russia policy. They are so linked to the hip right now, whether you like it or not. Well, if you're going to let uh, go soft on Russia to focus on China, 
Uh, you are not thinking of the big picture. We'll talk about that, see if he agrees. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Sponsored by Crunch Fitness. Interested in owning your own business in a growing $30 billion industry? Check out Crunch Fitness at crunch.com. Number three. Right at the get-go, Dr. Fauci gets an email from Dr. Christian Anderson, which says virus looks engineered, virus not consistent with evolutionary theory. That same day, Dr. Fauci organizes a conference call. All these other virologists, they get on there, and three days later, everybody changes their story. Uh, Coincidence? I don't think so. Here we go. It's coming into focus. How Anthony Fauci got the lab leak theory squelched until recently he commissioned the memo that concluded it started at a wet market. But why? Culpable, perhaps? It's so important we get to the bottom of this as we try to come to grips with our number one foe, China, and what they're actually capable of. Number two. I think it's a warning sign for the country. Uh, Eric Adams has been talking about public safety, not only on the campaign trail, uh, but for the first year. I showed up at crime scenes. It is really stating that this is what I have been talking about. America, we have to be safe. Lesson learned, perhaps, between Joe Biden helping block D.C.'s pro-criminal reforms to loss of Lightfoot in Chicago as mayor. The message being sent by Americans is that criminals are wrecking this country, specifically the cities. Fix it or you're out. We'll discuss. Number one. We will evict Joe Biden from the White House. We are never going back to a party that wants to give unlimited money to fight foreign wars. It's insane that Joe Biden has gotten a free pass for this socialist spending spree. This is the weekend of 2024, the weekend when I guess the right, the conservatives, the Republicans pulled the trigger on the starting gun as the battle for the nomination began. And we also got clues as they shadow box with each other about their strategy to the nomination, which will be going through Donald Trump. No doubt about it. He is the front runner. But how firmly is he up there? Michael Goodwin joins us now, knows him well, columnist for The New York Post. Michael, welcome. Good morning, Brian. Thank you. Uh, Club for Growth said, Mr. President, you're not welcome. Uh, CPAC said it's all about you. Uh, And it seems Nikki Haley got a a respectful welcome. Tim Scott, a respectful welcome. But they went to both places. And then Mike Pompeo had a chance to speak on Fox News Sunday. It's pretty clear they're circling each other. Well, look, I think... uh Broadly speaking, the Republican electorate right now is divided between Trump and not Trump. And part of what's going on is to uh, siphon out uh, who is the not Trump candidate, who was the one person who would go head to head with him. And so I think that all of the others, oddly, uh, are competing for that one spot to be the non-Trump candidate uh, within the party. And, you know, you have eight or nine, maybe even more will enter into it. Uh, Larry Hogan, the the uh, Maryland governor, withdrew, basically thinking, obviously, that he couldn't be that person. He couldn't win. And even if you do win that uh, role, you become the non-Trump through the primary process, uh, you still have to beat him in the in the ultimate winner-take-all approach. So it's a long road, I think, for these non-Trump candidates. And, of course, Trump himself 
as you and I have discussed, Brian, uh, he is not a shoe-in uh, for the, the nomination at this point. He clearly has the upper hand, but it's a long way to go. Uh, he mentioned the other day the possibility of being indicted. Uh, there's just, I think there is a fatigue factor as well. So it, it, it's going to be a rocky road for both elements in the party. Uh, well, yeah, he says if he is indicted, he's not going to stop running. He says no way. He also indicated that this this guy they brought back from The Hague as special prosecutor is bringing his friends into Washington and has never been experienced this before and threatening them to flip on him about why he took documents or didn't take documents to Mar-a-Lago. That's a little extreme compared to what they're doing to uh, Biden, wouldn't you say? Or Mike Pence? Absolutely. Um, You know, you you have Merrick Garland uh, as the attorney general last week getting raked over the coals on a number of things that uh, display a partisanship. I thought Josh Hawley did an excellent job on the issue of the armed raid, the, the you know, how many armed FBI agents came to the house of a, of a father where the house was full of children uh, for protesting uh, abortions. Uh, this doesn't happen on the left. This, I mean, Merrick Garland's answer, I, th- I thought it was a joke when I first heard it. He said that the protest happened in daylight, uh, but that there, uh, the fire bombings uh, of uh, the anti-abortion groups, uh, that happens at night, and we don't have a lot of witnesses. So that's the FBI. Yeah. That's like saying, go commit your crime at night, people. We won't, we won't bother you then. I mean, it was an unbelievable answer for the attorney general. I thought he came off very poorly. And that, that goes to the heart of whether Donald Trump is being treated fairly or whether the Justice Department is sort of putting a, an arms wrap around Joe Biden to protect him, not just on documents, but on the Hunter Biden uh, stuff as well. No so, kidding. I think that's a, there's no question about that. Just real quick on the Republicans aiming at Republicans, which you know is going to happen in a competitive field. Sure. Nobody thinks that McCain and Romney got along. Nobody thinks that, you know, uh, Al Gore was getting along with Bill Bradley. I can still remember those guys going at it. We know that Donald Trump was ripping everybody on the stage. It's it's just a process you go through. I don't think Hillary Clinton had any legitimate debates except for maybe one with Bernie Sanders. But I want you to hear what uh, Chris Sununu said about what he's concluded already, whether he gets in or not. Cut to. As far as former President Trump, I think he's going to run. Obviously, he's in the race. He's not going to be the nominee. That's just not going to happen. Um, and so I think there's a lot of opportunity to bring forward what the, the Republican Party, not what we were, not yesterday's leadership or yesterday's story um, or, or crying about what happened in November of 22, but what we are going to bring to the table and get done tomorrow. That's what America is looking for. And so right now, if the election were today, Ron DeSantis would win in New Hampshire. So uh, I know who else said that. Governor Jeb Bush said that, and he got the nomination. So what do you, what do you think about what Governor Sununu is doing there? Well, look, I think he is talking his own book, as they say on Wall Street. Uh, he wants it. He wants Republicans to look beyond Trump because then he feels that he has a chance, that all of, again, all of the non-Trumps, uh, they have a chance if, if Trump is history. But Trump is not history. And I think that whoever is going to emerge, if it's not Trump, is going to have a heck of a battle on his or her hands, because Trump is not going to make it easy. Neither are the others, because if they all believe that the one survivor of this uh, can actually defeat Trump, 
Trump and win the presidency, then it's it's going to be bitter. It's going to be tough. It's going to be brass knuckles all the way. Let's talk about what your column's about, and that's about crime and the wake-up call that Lori Lightfoot's uh, devastating loss uh, really should send to any politician and any person who cares about the country. Here's what Mayor, how Mayor Eric Adams answered that question. Cut 20. I think it's a warning sign for the country. Uh, Eric Adams has been talking about public safety, not only on the campaign trail, uh, but for the first year. I showed up at crime scenes. It is really stating that this is what I have been talking about. America, we have to be safe. So do you think it's more of she's more than just a terrible governor who got her comeuppance? Uh, well, look, I, I think she certainly deserved it in a lot of ways. Mayor. Uh, you know, the, um, the, the crime numbers in Chicago are off the, off the charts. You know, Brian, I always talk about the murders, the number of murders, because I believe that's the one crime that's not really uh, flexible and, and whether it gets reported and how the police maybe massage statistics to make themselves look better sometimes, or if people just get discouraged and don't even report crimes. Murder we can count on. We can count on that we have a pretty good handle on the number of murders. And here's Chicago uh, having 700 or more murders in each of the last three years, 700. New York City, by comparison, which has 6 million more people, had 438 murders last year, and that's too high. So I think that what you see in in many of these cities that have never really undergone a policing revolution, you're seeing that the police do not know how to handle these things, and the political class is afraid to really uh, give the police the power and the authority and the support to go out and do their job. So New York is ahead of the curve in this way. And for good reason, New York City went through this revolution back in the 90s, and it continued well into the 2000s, uh, first under Rudy Giuliani and then under Michael Bloomberg. So New York had 20 years of this. And and by the way, there's a wonderful new documentary coming out uh, later this month called uh, Gotham, The Fall and rise of New York, all about the, the, the crime issue and other issues that, that go with it. Like Chicago also has a school issue. Chicago has a welfare issue. All of the, the homeless issue. All of these things are connected to sort of how the governance of these cities. In some cases, the states are important. But, but it's important too. for people to understand that if that documentary is accurate, it'll bring it to today because crime was going down every single year from 93 to 2019. The new bail law comes across, and now it's up 47% in all criminal indexes, all of them. So it's been an absolute self-inflicted wound, the lives that are ruined, the lives that are lost, because of this bail reform, which nobody seems to be able to have the power to overturn. The numbers are staggering, and they're costing costing us millions. Between that and the illegal immigrants who we're paying for to stay in luxury apartments while they continue to take more and more money from us and be over budgeted, it is maddening what the city has done to itself. Absolutely. And don't forget the impact of the George Floyd riots, 
where the police were held back. And once you go down that road, I mean, I think the bail reform laws are very important. There's another one, too, called Raise the Age yeah. from 16 to 18, where now uh, anybody under 18 is, is treated in family court, and you have increasing numbers of young kids using guns and killing other young kids. That has to be changed as well and removed or sent back to what it was, which was 16 was the age. But I think that what happened, you're right about the bail laws and the other laws, but I think it also was a mental thing. When the police were restrained and crimes were permitted to occur openly during the George Floyd situation, uh, I think that that sent a message to the police uh, that you are no longer free to do your jobs. We are handcuffing the cops. We are putting the cops on notice that if they do their jobs, we will not support them. We might as well pro- we might end up prosecuting the police instead of the bad guys. And I think that is a factor that is still simmering through police forces across America. Yeah, of course it is. And it's so mass resignations. Officers don't want to yes. do it. They're lowering the standards in the academy. Uh, you know, the mayor... Uh, does show up. I'll give him that. He does show up. At least talks to people. He shows an interest. He doesn't show up late. He shows up on time. Uh, and he has the first positive sign. He, I guess overall crime was down 0.4% from month to month. Uh, that's the first lack of increase in quite some time. Right, right. Look, Eric Adams, I think, was the best Democrat running in the election in 2021. He is far superior to Bill de Blasio, the, the terrible mayor New York had for eight years after Michael Bloomberg. So there's definite progress. But I think there is still there's still so many obstacles to this, Brian, that, yes, the murders have come down, uh, 50 fewer murders in 22 over 21 in New York. That's a, that's real progress. Shooting incidents are down, but there's still a great sense of public disorder and fear, and that's got to be conquered. And so I still think that Eric Adams has a lot of work to do to do that. And even though I support him, I think he's got to be more consistent. He's got to fight harder with Albany. These are all fellow Democrats in Albany who won't change these laws. The governor has been a disaster on this issue, Governor Hochul. She has done nothing to help this issue. Uh, So there's a lot of work to be done. But still, compared to Chicago, New York is clearly well ahead of the pack. Yeah, I hear you. Uh, Well, I mean, I guess we'll see what happens. Uh, The one thing I I would say is that with Governor Hochul not only not helping on Long Island, which clearly didn't go for her, she's trying to jam 800,000 low-income housing into communities that don't want it without an infrastructure that can handle it. And uh, it is so irresponsible, and it's retribution. And if there's any justice, these local politicians, Republicans and Democrats, will push back on this Cuomo-like move. She is so incompetent, it's scary. Uh, Michael Goodwin, thanks so much. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Brian. Hey, listen, when we come back, I'll take your calls and read your emails. Go to briankillme.com. I'm getting some of them right now. I'll hear what you have to say. Don't move. So glad you're here. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. Information you want, truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Well, what Republicans are trying to do is, of course, ban books in libraries. They're trying to keep our schools from teaching black history. 
Uh, they make up things about CRT uh, in schools that just don't exist. And so they've got a lot of extreme right wing candidates, frankly, on the crazy end of things that are running. And we just want to make sure that people know who they are and know not to vote for them. Right. Uh, that's Governor Pritzker saying exactly what Andrea Mitchell says. Uh, we don't want to teach black history. Uh, that's uh, people that are against CRT don't want to teach black history. You could not be more mistaken. Want to put it in perspective of slavery. There was reconstruction, segregation, Jim Crow. Got it. But when you talk about different schools of thought of where we're at today, different schools of thought, what was being spoken back in the 60s and 50s and 40s along the way, that's what he wants, diversity of thought. And then the whole queer theory when it comes to race relations has no place in race relations. And the anti-American slant on a lot of this curriculum has parents beside themselves. Governor Pritzker can sit there in Illinois and think that parents think Democrat or Republican. They don't get up every day anti-American. And a lot of this curriculum is just that. They're aware of it. It used to be in elite colleges. Few went there. Few would talk about it. Some people would emerge from it. And now we're seeing it in grammar schools and high schools. And he took uh, he took note on that. And he's perfectly willing to defend it. If Governor Yonke gets in, he'll be talking education, too. No question. And I think they basically have the same philosophy. Governor Sununu doesn't. Governor Sununu says, I don't really think it's up to a governor to decide on a lot of these social policies, these woke policies. That's what's going to make it interesting. No one should get angry. People should get interested. Hear both sides debated. But what Governor Pritzker did, making it an inaccurate cartoon, actually helps Governor DeSantis. So when he pushes back and says, let me tell you why Disney's wrong— but let me tell you why that uh, billionaire is wrong in, in Illinois. Who knows? He could even be his opponent if something happens with Joe Biden declaring. After all, he would be a very old 82 uh, and four more years staring at him and at us. Scary thought. When we come back, Steve Hadley joins us. Don't move. Brian Kilmeade Show. From his mouth to your ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. I think we have to recognize uh, that uh, the Chinese-Russian relationship is perhaps more strategic than many of us had thought. That it really is a relationship that is aimed at the heart of U.S. power in the world. And uh, that would say, then, uh, these two are not divisible. So if you want to say, let's just concentrate on the Indo-Pacific, mm-hmm. that's not going to work. And, oh, by the way, many of our allies, Australia, Japan, uh, fundamentally understand that. Uh, we will see. Uh, Stephen Hadley joins us now, former National Security Advisor under President Bush, W. Bush, author of Hands Off, the foreign policy George W. Bush handed off to Barack Obama as he looks at the world today and sees how some of those philosophies hold up as Condoleezza Rice goes to bat for staying uh, the course in Ukraine. Stephen, welcome back. It's nice to be here. Thanks for having me, Brian. So clearly Condoleezza Rice says when you're uh, focusing on Russia and Ukraine, you're not forgetting about China because they're not forgetting about what's happening in Eastern Europe. They're staked in that, too. That's right. You know, before the Beijing Olympics, Putin and Xi met and talked about an unlimited partnership. And China has really backed Putin in his intervention and and making of war on Ukraine. And in some sense, uh, a setback for Putin, Ukraine is a setback for Xi in China. Uh, The two, in some sense, are linked at the hip. 
So do you think it's necessary for America to be engaged there, Ukraine? I sure do. You, look, the principle that you can to go into your neighbor now for a second time, having gone first in 2014, now in 2022, can go into labor with an into your neighbor with an intention of basically liquidating your neighbor, destroying their sovereignty and incorporating them into your country violates the most fundamental principle of the international order that emerged after World War II and has been responsible for avoiding the kinds of wars that we had in the 20th century. So it's terribly important that Putin's be denied his strategic objectives in Ukraine if the world is going to be peaceful and ordered going forward. I mean, we saw the fracture happen. Uh, Your boss, Bush 43, in the beginning, they got along. And then by the end of it, they obviously didn't. They were at the Olympics, I think, when uh, Georgia was invaded uh, in 2008. And they blamed it on Shashkiavili being so vociferous and challenging. Uh, but now he's in jail, by the way. And but it wasn't. It was Russia saying, "I want to get the I want to get the Soviet Union back." And now we're seeing it for certain. Did Putin change or just reveal himself? It's hard to know. I think Putin evolved over time. But I think the thing that really two things that uh, that are stand out. You're right. The Putin George W. Bush dealt with is a different Putin than Putin today. But over the course of the Bush administration. Putin did become more authoritarian at home. He had flirted with more political democracy. He clearly turned his back on it. And what really got him were these color revolutions in 2003, 4, and 5 in Georgia, Ukraine, and Tajikistan. We thought those revolutions were establishing prosperous democratic states that would be good neighbors for Russia. Putin didn't see it that way. So he listen to saw these as yeah. basically CIA operations that were establishing on his border countries that would be anti-Russian and maybe were even a dress rehearsal for destabilizing Russia itself. And that was what was behind his decision to go into Georgia in 2008. Look, the Belarusian uh, Lushenko lost his election in Belarus. He just basically stayed there with Russia's backing. And now Russia basically owns that country. So Sergei Lavrov the propagandist, who's a foreign minister, was at the G20 and had this statement in New Delhi, India, about what happened with this war. Listen to this. Cut 37. You know, uh, the war uh, which uh, we are trying to stop and which was launched against us using the Ukraine, <laughs> U- Ukrainian people, uh, of course, it influenced, influenced, influenced uh, the uh, policy of Russia. Is he out of his out of his mind? Does he really expect that people to believe what he just said? They laughed at him. They laugh at him. Those folks who were present may have laughed at him, but this is the line that Putin is using within Russia to build support for the war. He's trying to tell the Russian the people that this is a rerun of World War II when Russia was invaded by Nazi Germany. He's trying to argue that basically uh, Ukraine was a threat to Russia. He calls it a neo-Nazi state, if you will, and that Ukraine was the instrument by which the United States and the West were going to destabilize and destroy Russia. And that is the argument he's making today in order to try to mobilize the 
Russian people in support of this war. Steve Hadley, our guest. And Steve, I want to get to your philosophy, too. But just to finish off the news over the weekend, we know that China, and it will be devastating to the war effort, it will totally ratchet things up, might give lethal aid to Russia, who basically, according to our own Steve Harrigan, was doing some of the uh, invading in Bakhmut in an effort to take that city. They are so out of ammunition, they're using shovels to rush the Ukrainian forces. That's how bad they need arms. And evidently, China's really considering giving them to him and is very mad at Russia for leaking that out ahead of time. So listen to what the president, uh, Olaf Scholz, said, the German chancellor, to this prospect. I think it would have uh, consequences, but uh, we are now in a stage where we are making clear that this should not happen. And I'm relatively um, optimistic that we will be successful with our request in this case. But we will have to look at it, and we have to be very, very cautious. Germany denied they're the number one trading partner of China, I think. So that would be a big deal if they decide to do any type of decoupling, wouldn't it? If they were to uh, supply, if China were to supply lethal arms that would show up on the battlefield as Russia wages war to Ukraine, that's going to be a game changer. I think it's going to be even a game changer in Europe, but it's certainly going to be a game changer with the U.S. Congress. And I think it means both sanctions and export control restrictions and all kinds of things on China. And I think it'll push China-U.S. relations really below the basement, if you will. It'll it'll really push it all the way down the ladder uh, of relations. Uh, I think for that reason, China will be loath to do it. If if it were necessary to keep Russia from actually, quote, losing this war, unquote, they might think about it uh, and they might actually do it. But I think at this point, I hope they're making the cost trade off that the the cost would outweigh the benefits. Stephen Halley, our guest, he's got a new book out, Hands Off the Foreign Policy, George W. Bush passed to Barack Obama. So tell me about the Bush philosophy, what he left, because we know he left a quiet Iraq and President Obama took the troops out. We ended up with ISIS uh, and Iraq hasn't been stable since. Iran's got uh, unmet influence in that area. In Afghanistan, you saw the embarrassing and humiliating way in which we left. Those were both two wars that were conducted during George W. Bush's reign. Who dropped the ball? You know, what we tried to do in the transition in the book is really got 30 of the 40 transition memos we prepared for the Obama administration, including transition memos on the very topics you mentioned. What Bush wanted to do was leave these wars and leave these policies in a way that Obama could pick them up and continue them, because he understood that if we were going to stabilize Iraq and Afghanistan, make them prosperous, stable, secure, democratic states, it was going to require more than one administration. It was going to require a number of administrations pursuing that policy, as we did to bring stability and democracy to South Korea, and as we did to rebuild Europe after World War II. So he tried to put these policies in such a way that it would be easy for Barack Obama to continue them. And he didn't. uh, He was only we were only partially successful in that regard. So how disappointing? I think the, the it's quite disappointing. You know, Iraq was in a 
reasonable state. Al-Qaeda in Iraq had been defeated. There was still a terrorist threat, but it didn't threaten the country. And I think the decisions that were made in Syria when it began to uh, descend into chaos and civil war in 2011 were problematic. And that situation festered and give, gave al-Qaeda to reconstitute itself in the form of ISIS, which in 2014 went into Iraq and took over 40 percent of the country and really undid all the benefits that derived from the courageous surge decision that the president made in January 2007. So it was quite disappointing. So the crashing of the market, too, that happened, too, over it just seemed to come to fruition on policies has been in place really since the 70s, if you look back and take politics out of it. But, Stephen, I'm, I'm reading uh, Governor DeSantis's book, and in it he says, I don't like the idea of what George Bush did with giving these uh, – giving these governments, uh, giving freedom to these people who knew nothing about democracy, uh, governments that they weren't ready to hold. What do you say to that criticism? Well, you know, the issue was we we went into Afghanistan and Iraq for real national security reasons. And then the question was, once you've overturned these governments, what should we do? Should we just substitute one dictator for another? And President Bush thought that we, being the United States of America, standing for democracy, freedom, human rights, rule and law, ought to give those countries the opportunity to build societies based on those principles. Uh, And we did. And one of the reasons we did was we thought it was the only way that those states made up of a variety of linguistic, ethics and religious groups would stay together. was if it was within a democratic framework. And if they didn't stay together, they would continue to be breeding grounds for terrorism and that that terrorism ultimately would come home here to the United States. No, I hear you. Uh, And then as you look throughout the look throughout the region, uh, what is happening now? I mean, basically, George Bush was on the phone with the leader of uh, Iraq multiple times a week helped him through the toughest times, provided advice. When you stop communicating, as this administration does and the Obama administration does, take your hands off the wheel. That vacuum is going to be filled, and it's been filled by Iran. There's no doubt about it. One of the things Bush realized was, yes, it was going to take time. It was a challenge to build democratic, secure, prosperous states. Uh, But, you know, these leaders, uh, Maliki in Iraq, and Karzai in Afghanistan, as he said, President Bush said, these folks have never led a country before. I've got to help them. I've got to help them, and I can help them. And it is in America's interest to help them, because the only way the Middle East is not going to be a cauldron that produces terrorism is if we can produce some secure, stable, prosperous, responsible states who will will meet the needs of their people – Fight with terror, fight against terror, and help us to support the international system. And Stephen Hadley, since you guys left, you had Barack Obama decide, okay, I'm going to support the rebels against uh, Gaddafi, but had no plan afterwards, and it's been chaos ever since. He took the missile defense system out of Eastern Europe as a homage, a, a big hello, and uh, to Vladimir Putin to reset the relationship. That has been a disaster. He looks at it as weakness, and then we know what happened when he pulled out of Iraq. We got ISIS. So that's pretty much a disastrous foreign policy that Bob Gates, who was your secretary of defense during your time and stayed over to Barack Obama, chronicled in his book. 
There were obviously mistakes were made. One of the things I think that that is important is after Putin went into Georgia in 2008, we said very clearly to ourselves that if we don't impose a real strategic cost on Putin for going into Georgia, today it'll be Georgia, tomorrow it will be Ukraine, and the day after it'll be the Baltic states. And those, of course, Baltic states are in NATO, so an invasion of the Baltic states means a NATO-Russia war. That's what we needed to try to prevent and deter. We tried to do that after Georgia. Maybe we didn't do enough, but we kind of threw all of the relationships we built with Russia over seven years, we threw them into the toilet because we had to send a message that this was not acceptable, that if Putin was going to have this behavior, he would have no relationship with the West. And that's the message we need to send now with respect to Ukraine. And lastly, we know what happened when they go, did go into Ukraine and took Crimea and parts of the Donbass region with their separatists. They did, said, we'll give Ukraine blankets and MREs. That was the weak response that led to what we're at today. And I also think Putin changed. I think Putin, during this period of, of COVID, he was isolated. He was buried down in the Soviet and Russian archives. And I think this notion of restoring the Russian empire, not the Soviet empire, the Russian empire uh, within the former Soviet state, with Putin seeing himself as sort of Peter the Great, I think that that idea really took hold and is really his ID, E-Day fixe, if you will. And that is the notion that we have to defeat. Right. And, and it's been a disaster financially. It's been a disaster militarily. They've performed terribly, but they could outlast the Ukrainians. We have to make sure that doesn't happen. Stephen Hadley, congratulations on writing hands off the foreign policy. George W. Bush passed to Barack Obama. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me today, Brian. You got it. Uh, when we come back, it's your turn. Your turn to be on national television, national radio, one 408 Politics, current events, and news that affects you. Brian's got a lot more to say. Stay with Brian Kilmeade. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Y'all know what happened to me. Getting smacked by Suge Smith. Everybody knows. Everybody knows. Yes, it happened. I got smacked like a year ago. Fucking last week, I got smacked at the Oscars by this. And people like, did it hurt? It still hurts. <laughs> I got summertime ringing in my ears. <laughs> Drums, please. But I'm not a victim, baby. You will never see me on Oprah or Gale crying. You will never see it. Never gonna and that was Chris Rock finally speaking about something that happened almost a year ago, getting slapped by Will Smith, having some fun going live on Netflix. I watched some of it. It looked real good. He's, I mean, he's one of the top comics. What I like most about it is saying, I'm not going to be a victim. I'm not going to complain. In all seriousness, Sebastian said some of the same things. Pointed out some of the idiocy, Sebastian Maniscalco, in our school. Dave Chappelle will not be canceled. 
and what it takes. It's crazy, but the more I think about it, it's true. It's going to take courageous comedians on stage with a microphone to refuse to leave and for you to go and continue to watch them because you like them. You don't need a referee to decide if they're good or not. You're making your own decision. And with social media, they can sell their own shows. And for the most part, these streaming services are going to air them. And their pushback with their powers helping comedians, but I think it's helping everybody, along with Joe Rogan and others. Uh, I think it's really important. And I do think he handled it well. He doesn't want to sit down and give somebody else the ratings. Let everyone tune into Netflix and watch him. Brian Kilmeade Show. From high atop Fox News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest moment to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hope you had a great weekend. I want to hear all about it. Be able to take your questions in a little while. one 408 7669 President of the United States is going to be addressing firefighters today. That's a constituency he certainly wants to win over as we wait to find out what he's going to be doing in 2024. Man, it really seems like the Republicans took the gloves off this weekend on each other. Uh, and for the most part, plotting and planning because uh, almost all of them, even those that work with him and call Donald Trump their friend, want to figure out a way how to beat the former president, who, at the very least, people know he still got his endurance. Uh, spoke for almost two hours uh, over the weekend. So uh, with that, without any further, I'll have Charlie Hurd on the bottom of the hour to analyze all that. But it's my privilege to bring on uh, one of our nation's, pre- if not the premier historian in our country, put together documentaries like nobody else. But this is a little bit different. This is a book. It's a picture book like no other. It utilizes maybe the best archives outside the Smithsonian in the country. Uh, Our America is the name of it. And Ken Burns joins us now. Ken, congratulations on this. Thank you, Brian. It's great to hear your voice. And, and thank you so much. Yeah, this has been a labor of love for maybe 10 or 15 years. You know, I was taught and raised, grown up by, my dad was an amateur uh, still photographer, and then at college, folks were still photographers, not filmmakers, and so they reminded me that the still photograph is the DNA of everything I do, and so I've been thinking about how to do a history of us. Um, You know, I've made films about the U.S. for almost 50 years, but I've also made films about us, that is the two-letter lowercase plural pronoun. And what I've learned over those 50 years, Brian, is that there's only us. There's no them. And so I was trying to figure out a way, and I realized it doesn't have to be with a film. It can be with a book that starts with the first selfie, the first self-portrait ever taken in 1839, the year that photography was invented, and take us up more or less to the present. I'm in the history business, so the recent present doesn't interest me as much. But to sort of look in single image on on a page, minimal captions, the back of the book has much fuller details on all the photographs, and just sort of walk through the beauty of this continent, the variety of the people, the political struggles, the wars, the, the all the things that are us, and to try to put them under kind of put one arm around them and say, you know, this is who we are. And it's just been, uh, you know, it came out in... in November, and it's just been going like gangbusters. It's really been exciting because we did work on it at night and on weekends as we were trying to finish all the various films we're working on. So a couple of things. You realize you would have sold a lot more on Christmas. I mean, there's no better book that, that ever done Christmas, but uh, maybe we'll make it a, a, a perfect Mother's Day gift. 
uh, coming up where Easter gift is just fantastic. It only not only chronicles America's past, but your past on stuff and things you did. We have baseball in here. We've got the Civil War in here. We've got the presidents yeah. in here. War is all over this uh, through through time. So was it did you work backwards? Did you work around your documentaries? Yeah, well, I sort of did. You know, there's a little bit of winking. I think nearly every film I've worked on is there in some way, shape, or form. But what I wanted to do more than anything is have it not be about me, but about um, the 50 states. So every one of the 50 states is there. There's a photograph of at least one from the 50 states. And obviously some others have, you know, uh, a few more. But it's it was a way to sort of say I've spent my entire professional life asking one deceptively simple question. Who are we? Who are these strange and complicated people who like to call themselves Americans? And what does an investigation of the past tell us about not only where we were, but where we are and also where we may be going? And so this was a way to do it. I was drawn to to photographs that I've used in films. And quite often when I was working with my collaborators, particularly Susanna Dysel, who was my big archival gal for three decades, um, she would find a, a photograph that we hadn't seen while we were making the film on, let's just say Jackie Robinson, or we, a film on, on jazz or something. And so we'd put something else in. And it it was interesting because if you have one photograph uh, to a page, then the first, which has no accompanying one, and the last has no picture, all the others are in conversation not only with you, the, the viewer, because with a minimal caption, you're forced to sort of just drink in the photograph, just feel it for the first time. But they're also talking to one another on the opposite page. And so there's some interesting kind of rhymes going, internal rhymes in the book. And what was nice is that because I didn't have time, my day job is really, you know, I'm always working on four or five films at once. Um, and some of those are super long. This gave this a chance to marinate, to incubate over literally years and years so that I could finally, when I delivered the book to Kanaf, I could just, I realized that it was hugely about my own process as a human being, as well as a filmmaker, understanding the complexity and the undertow, the beauty and the majesty of of us, the story of us. And so it's all there. That's why it's, you know, let's be honest, it's, it's my America, but it's our because it was made in the spirit of sharing it with everybody. The great natural beauty, as I was saying, and also complicated moments uh, in between and try to figure out a visual language that we could just talk to each other, all of us, and say, yep, that's it, tug a rope in Putney, uh, Vermont. There's, you know, kids playing uh, guns out in Guymon, uh, Oklahoma, in the midst of the Dust Bowl. There's still time to, to have fun. There's, you know, former slaves going to a reunion. There's, um, how should we say it, a lady of the evening from Storyville in New Orleans, and right across from her are the formidable pillars of the, of, uh, the Pennsylvania Station. So you've got there's sort of winks and there are puns and there's love and you know that's that's basically what I wanted to do is just speak to all the things that we are. You know it's so interesting. I mean it goes through our time. It's really about people, but you also have major moments. Uh, the construction uh, we watch Mount Rushmore being carved out. Yeah. I mean you see that moment. How many people even know that even exists? 
uh, I had a chance to go back there and I saw some of those pictures, but I actually never saw that one. But you just talk about uh, race in America, the separation. You talked about slavery. You talk about segregation. You talk about the people, what they go through. And a lot of kids in this book, too. Uh, Kids then, uh, obviously, probably passed on by now. I mean, is it possible to look through this and and not be reflective on how far our country's come? Oh, I think that that's exactly it. How far we've come, how far we've got to go. You know, it's interesting, this this idea of American exceptionalism, you know, what that requires, if you're going to be the best, say you're the Tom Brady of countries, right, or you're the whatever it is of, of, of a country, you're constantly working on yourself and you're constantly looking and examining and taking stock and always trying to be better. You never rest on your laurels. You never stop uh, looking how to improve. It's sort of, there are a lot of sports metaphors besides me citing Tom Brady because it's in sports that very early on as kids, we're reminded of how we don't live up to what the expectation is and we have to get better. And so there is a kind of generous and yet very disciplined, let's be better. So to me, looking at this is not, this is not a criticism. This is a celebration of all that we have been, all of the struggles that we've been through and all of the great promises that we have in so many different ways, heroic moments, just as you say, tiny little poignant moments with kids. Sometimes it's just the natural beauty. There's one shot, one whole page. It's just um, uh, dew forming on a pussy willow branch. You know, and you just kind of go, my God, that's stunning and that's gorgeous. And you can find out, you know, I was remembered when I was in school, people would say, God is in the details. And so I always have been mindful or tried to be mindful, Brian, in the work that I've done, that that was true, that you could see uh, as the poet William Blake said, the, the universe in a grain of sand, the world in a grain of sand. And you you understand and appreciate that the architecture of the atom shares a profound similarity with the design of the solar system. And so you begin to understand in our religious teachings, it's as above, so below. Um, I, I have tried to use that in putting the book together as much as saying, oh, I now need to chronologically walk through the United States. We never leave the United States. So the foreign wars are represented, obviously, by a, a, a soldier kissing his girlfriend or right. by uh, something that shows you, you know, a big parade on, on Fifth Avenue when they're uh, heading off to World War One. But you you, and there is the shot of, of um, Pearl Harbor under attack. So there, there's that thing. But you also understand there's a great deal that's off stage. Of course, you know, I probably looked at 30,000 images to put the 250 wow. or so that are here. And a lot of them I'd seen before. As I said, the, the front cover is by my mentor, a still photographer named Jerome Liebling, now been dead more than um, a dozen years, and we miss him terribly. But it's a, just a kid, you know, on the streets in New York City with this bulbous, you know, wheel housing behind him, and he's got threadbare shoes, and he's in shorts, and he's got a coat in his arm. He's got this rakish hat. He's got a hockey shirt on. It's just and and he's got as much presence. I remember I was out promoting. I was on some uh, TV show, and somebody said, "What's the most important fo- photograph here?" 
And I said, well, I don't know. He says, what about Lincoln? I said, yeah, that last beautiful photograph, you know it well, Brian, of, of that was taken of, of Lincoln, just uh, the last photograph portrait of him where he's holding his glasses and you, all the cares of the world. And you can see, see that his he's face. seen the whole, whole history of us. And he's seen, he sees where we are and he sees where we're going. And I said, you know, the great promise of America is that this kid on the cover is as important as Lincoln and vice versa, right? There's something... He, Lincoln's just a man, right? This is he's been through some stuff. He's lost a kid. He's, you know, had a difficult marriage. He's had ups and downs, lost his mom, you know, all, all the sorts of things that happen to ordinary people. So when we deify him, we we make him something less than right. who he was. And I, I thought that we were trying to return full value. You know, the cliche is that a picture is worth a thousand words. And there's so many billions of them today that I think that their value has been declined. And I was just trying to say, let's, let's go back and say, this is, let's return full value to a photograph. So the name of the book is called Our America. Uh, Ken Burns selected these photographers along with the rest of his staff of these photographs, and he's got a library like nobody else. When we come back, a few more minutes, including a little about Ken. You wrote about yourself personally uh, in yeah. the beginning of this book, so I think people would love to know where you got the passion for history and why it means so much and what Thanks. your dad has to do with it, so I'd love to hear that. And I do love sure. everything uh, in the book from you see Edison and Henry Ford shaking hands to little yeah. kids playing. So how many books can actually say they're equally as important I would argue they are. That's our story. And we used to study it. Now we judge it. I, I like to go back to the way we used to do it. Ken Burns, don't move. Back in a moment. Educating. Entertaining. Enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hey, welcome back, everybody. 25 minutes after the hour. A few more minutes with Ken Burns. He's got a brand new book out. And I know if you have a passion for American history, you're not going to, you, your life will be better if you get it. And you're not going to be able to put it down. Uh, nor will any of your guests if they come to the house. Uh, Our America is the name of it. So, Ken, we know very little about you personally, your history. Your mom passes away early. And, and your dad had a, also had a passion for photography. And you also mentioned how it all relates to you seeing him showing emotion for the first time, crying for the first time. You yeah, talk about so that? I'm, yeah, sure. So the first memory I have is of my dad building a dark room in the basement of our development we lived in in Newark, Delaware. He was the only anthropologist in the state of Delaware. And uh, I remember the beautiful alchemy of a photograph coming to life. So that stuck with me. My mom got cancer almost around that same time and heroically survived for uh, almost 10 years and um, passed away in 1965. And my dad had 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 a pretty strict curfew for my younger brother and me, but he forgave it if there was a movie on TV or out at the Cinema Guild or in a regular first-run place and we'd go on a school night we'd stay up till one o'clock in the midst of all the you know ginzu knife commercials and one night we were watching a movie called odd man out about the irish trouble starring james mason the irish troubles from the teens and 20s of the 20th century and a uh, very tragic film by a great british uh director sir carol reed and um, my dad just started crying, and I'd never seen him cry when my mom was sick or when she died or at her incredibly sad funeral. And I realized right then and there that that 
that film had given him an emotional safe haven, a place that nothing else in his life permitted him to express something. And I was 12 by that time. My mom died when I was 11, a few months before. And I just vowed to myself right then and there, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to become um, a filmmaker. And at that point, that meant Alfred Hitchcock or John Ford or somebody like that. But when I went to Hampshire College in Amherst, Massachusetts, which was an experimental school, still is, um, in its second year in the fall of 71, I ran into all these people who reminded me that what is and what was is as dramatic as anything of the imagination, as dramatic as fiction. And sometimes, as we know, and you know, it's more dramatic. You can't make it up. And so I kind of had my everything, my molecules rearranged by the experiment uh, at Hampshire. And then I found that I'd had this untrained and untutored love for American history. And so all of a sudden, by the time I'm 12, I know what I want to be. By the time I'm 18, I know what kind of that filmmaker person I am. And by 22, I know it's going to be in history. And I've spent, you know, the last several decades doing that and having just an amazing, amazing experience. And I had a moment where I realized that my mom's death, she died on April 28th, was always, as a kid, approaching and then receding. I could never be present. And my late father-in-law was an eminent psychologist, and I told him, you know, I I seem to be keeping my mom alive. He said, well, I bet you blew out your candles on your cake uh, when you were a kid wishing she'd come back. And he said, yeah, how did you know? And then he named three or four, said three or four other things that I also did too. And he looked at me and he said, well, look what you do for a living. And I said, excuse me? He said, you wake the dead. You make Abraham Lincoln and Jackie Robinson come alive. Who do you think you're really trying to wake up? And I realized the great gift of, you know, in a way, my mother's passing had forced me to, to in, into this intimate business of resurrection, of trying to bring people that people called it, oh, the dusty war, you know, past, who cares about that? How is it relevant? And show them how human they were as far back as you can. You know, we just did uh, last year, uh, Benjamin Franklin, we're working on a big history right now of the entire American Revolution and without photographs, trying to bring that story alive. But also... To see the way that they speak to us now, how much how right. much history is the greatest teacher. So, I am a, a product of tragedy, but what I've tried to do is is um, make some lemonade out of the lemon. Unbelievable, and we're all the beneficiary for it. Uh, uh, do you do it? We only have fifteen seconds. Do you in doing all this history? Are we an exceptional nation? I believe so, and we just have to keep working at it and working at it and working at it and never be self-satisfied. Got it. Uh, Ken, congratulations on Now America. Now this is a must-read, and everything you do is a must-watch. Thanks, Ken. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. You got it. Follow him at Ken Burns. Seriously, the book is fantastic. The more you listen... 
The more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. There's a tennis player, Novak Djokovic. He's like the best player ever. He's ever so good at tennis. He's dedicated his life to it. What's your point, sir? He cannot get into America. No. He'd like to be playing at the, uh, I think it's coming up, the Miami Open or something. He is unvaccinated, but he's had COVID twice. He had this, again, natural immunity. Something we always used to understand was, like, better than the actual vaccine. Somehow that got to be reversed. But head of the Miami tournament, I, I read a quote for him yesterday. He's, he's trying to get Djokovic in, and he said, uh, there doesn't seem to be any imminent danger, imminent danger of a man playing tennis, of a man who's had it twice standing al- alone, a sport where you're alone, in the middle of a stadium outside, in a country where everyone's already had it. No imminent danger. This country is stuck on stupid. It just is. And no, it's President Biden stuck on stupid and stupid administration because Trump never would have done that. I don't think there's many Democrats would have done that. I think Barack Obama, who knows, wasn't. Uh, it's just maddening. Djokovic is not vaccinated, comes from another country. He's got about two years left as the great, one of the greatest tennis players, if not the greatest ever. All he wants to do is play in front of Indian Wells in a tournament that doesn't get as much heat out in California. Now you take the number one player in the world out. People don't come. Like they would normally. They don't want to go to see him. He wants to play not for the money because he just wants to compete. And in America, we don't let him in because he's not vaccinated. Uh, I, I'm just, it just drives me nuts. Charlie Hurts here. Uh, Charlie, which title do you want wait, to go? Wait, Fox wait, News Channel wait until, or do you want Fox wait, News Channel? Do you want? Wait until uh, Ken Burns. Watch we're going to need Ken, Ken, Ken Burns to come back and do, a, and do a, a history of this period of time. And people are going and, and it needs to be uh, noted. All of it. It needs to be remembered because people are going to look back at this period Idiots. and think we were nuts. Right. And we are nuts. We've lost our minds. But I do think that I am also I, manipulated by people that had uh, looking to cover their butts, it seems, when it comes to the Anthony Fauci. A little bit was, excuse oh me, God. the guy that I thought we were supposed to trust was telling people to write memos that say whatever you say, say it doesn't come from a lab leak. So you can't blame the average American for that. Yeah, I don't understand the whole concept of that. If you are in charge of public health in this country, why would your why would you have any other objective than to find out what actually happened? Why would you be trying to 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 shade it or jaundice it? Except uh, you know, uh, unless, unless you you're had culpable, some, yeah, unless you had something to hide. And uh, and but 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 even a, you know, short of that, it's just appalling to me. It's like it's like it's just appalling to me that anybody would have taken those precious months uh, early in the pandemic and not devoted all of their efforts to finding out what the origin of this. Who knows what we could have found out if we had managed to get information early in real time about where this came from. Imagine the number of – and, and you, you know, you, I, you know, I'm uncomfortable. Nothing gets me angry to talk yeah. about this. No, I, 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 I hate – I'm not going to sit here and, and do what a lot of people do, like blaming Anthony Fauci for killing millions of people. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not going there. But, you, you, you know, you, if you were an honest observer and you cared about your country, the only thing you would have cared about – is getting to the bottom of, of where it came from. To stop the next Who's one. Respond, and to stop the next one, but also to unravel whatever the thing it was. And and who knows what we would have found out if we had that information out of that lab in real time and could have maybe found a way to 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 stem the, the spread. Well, how about this? When people come out and say this got to come from the Wuhan lab and those scientists end up getting $7 million grants and they change their opinion and now it came from an actual source – and meanwhile, we still don't have the answer to how we stop it. 
So do you think this because it starts on Tuesday? These these yeah. hearings start on Tuesday. Do, do you think that 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 we might, um, out of all of this, take a second glance at all of the monster? Grants that we give universities so. and and hospitals and allowing China to give them too. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it, it really is. It, it, you know, if you like a free, well, how dare he write a seven million dollar check of our money? I mean, how right. dare he? Who gave For, him that power? Especially on this. Exactly. Especially on this. That's um, no. It, it really is disturbing, and I I, I hope that uh, you know I, I I hope we learn the lessons. I just this, want to but, say to the fact I don't need anybody's rant. I don't want anybody right. venting. Because the minute you do that, it allows the state. It allows. Well, the then why do you have me on here if you don't want to hear a rant? It's uh, Allison's idea. I am against <laughs> booking you, but you keep showing up. And, I'm like, uh, I'm, I'm, sta- I'm stalking you because you really. Do you know me- how exhausting it is to stalk you? I mean, you're you're everywhere <laughs> all the time. Well, I, mean, I and I and, and and all I know is I look around for the book bag, according to Gutfeld. Just no, look for the book no, bag. It's not a the book knapsack. bag. It's a oh, knapsack. It's a knapsack. Backpack. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I used to do a shoulder bag. And it really was affecting my posture. So now I go double barrel b- backpack and he can't get over it. Well, that is kind of weird. I mean, that's kind of like, do you wear puffy tennis shoes and like you with your pants sagging to like and your and your oh, baseball you cap sideways? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not knocking it. I'm just knocking it. Until you if I give you both, you'd be backpacking it, too, because I'm walking from 48th and 6th to 34th. You know so, what a real man does? A real man just has a grip what? and walks with it mm. in his and uh, enough uh, upper body strength to carry it. That's what a that's what a real man does. Right. Are you saying that I'm not strong enough to carry my work? I don't know. Do you what? You, do you want to arm wrestle? I mean, yes. Uh, I want you to hear. Jim Jordan was in your very seat on Friday. Oh wow! And and you know he's in charge of getting to the bottom. Was of he this. wearing a jacket? No. Why would he? And he buttoned his top button for me. Uh, here's what he said about what to expect and what they've already discovered. Cut 26. First on the, on the COVID issue, understand that on January 31st, 10.32 p.m., 2020, so right at the get-go, Dr. Fauci gets an email from Dr. Christian Anderson, which says virus looks engineered, virus not consistent with evolutionary theory. The next day, he gets another email from Dr. Gary. Now, these are doctors he's handed out our tax dollars to over the years. Dr. Gary's email says, I don't know how this happens in nature. It would be easy to do in a lab. That same day, February 1st, 2020, so again, right at the start, that same day, Dr. Fauci organizes a conference call, him and Dr. Collins get on there with Dr. Gary, Dr. Anderson, all these other virologists. They get on there, and three days later, everybody changes their story. Is that okay with you? Um, and and changed and, and and in that memo, what was? Did you see where the edit on the memo went from? I can't remember what the the previous word was, but they changed it to improbable. That it was improbable that it came from, as opposed to impossible that it came from a lab. They are covering for something one hundred percent. One other thing about Jim Jordan, though, I, I hats off to him. How smart is this guy? Yeah, and and one of the things that that and and I get it. Like a lot of people are impatient because they want everything to come out yesterday, and I get that. But they are going at this very methodically. They are taking uh, and they're focusing on things that actually matter that that are not just partisan stuff. It's act, actual information that matters that affects. American citizens, American taxpayers, and they're doing it in a very and, – and I think that part of what makes them look so good in the way they're doing this is when you compare it to the, the, the actual witch hunts and the partisan lying that we've – that our, these investigations have been for the okay, past Can I also years. tell you the Democrats have no reason to fight this? 
No. So it's not a condemnation of a Joe Biden. Right. What is that? So what is your problem? Yeah. What is it? Is there it's like there's no faster way to assume guilt than to get upset about an investigation like this into something that supposedly has nothing to do with you. But there but there it's like my friend from the Caribbean used to say, um, I, I, I chunked a rock in the pen and a pig squealed. And it's the same thing here. You chunk a rock in it. You know you hit the pig because the pig starts squealing. So, that, I love the analogy. It, it totally works. A couple of things. So when you look back at what's happening, you're trying to find out the genesis of where it came from. And then you find out a guy that really wants to make sure you don't think it's coming from a lab for some reason generates a memo that says it didn't come from a lab for some reason. <laughs> And then eight weeks later, Fauci stood at the White House press conference alongside President Trump and cited that paper as evidence that the link, that the lab leak theory was implausible while pretending it had nothing to do with him. And he did not know the authors. That's the insidious thing of Anthony Fauci with that grandfatherly delivery. I'm just trying to tell you, I'm trying to disseminate for you because I'm so much smarter and more experienced. And people go, I like having that guy around. He seemed very trustworthy, and he conned people into thinking that he was being an honest operator. I think these people did more damage to the concept of public health than anybody uh, than than anybody in history. Um, and then, and then, of course, anybody who asked a question, you know, another thing, another tell um, about about whether people are being honest or, or, right. or real brokers or not is um, if they can handle questions. People who are being honest can handle it. Especially scientists. They love yes, it. Yes. Right? That's the whole concept right. of science. Yeah. It's all a question. They love it. Those are the guys yeah. with the really, who, who think yeah. for a living, you know? Yet anyone who asked a question, like even an obvious or simple question, they branded a conspiracy That's theorist the problem. and shut you down. Well, or, and you didn't even know it. A lot of times, yeah. it, but when you do to the Johns Hopkins professor and the Stanford professor, and then the, the guy who created the, the yep. mRNA virus, uh, how many people are going to be, well, we have to marginalize the, the Senator Ron Johnson-led committee when he was chairman, taken off YouTube? That's the problem. It wasn't that, it wasn't that if Anthony Fauci showed emotion and said, I really believe it, and then a guy shows him equal emotion, then we sit there and we have a better radio show. We have a better TV show, right. more insightful columns. And then we try to see what happens to and gets the better results. And then we go behind the guy or woman that has the best results. And for some reason, he want to do that. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who works for Pfizer on Face the Nation. By the way, we don't even want to talk about masks. A new study reveals that masks didn't work right. at all. Right. Uh, nuts. Cut 34. And I think based on that premise that there's a you know, likelihood that this came out of a lab, we may never be able to prove it with certainty. We should start behaving like it did come out of a lab and start taking the steps to make sure that that couldn't happen again. You know, we're still stuck on the debate about whether it was or wasn't a lab leak. I don't think we're going to prove that. I think we should work on the assumption that there's a probability that it was a lab leak and start putting in place the kinds of protections that we need. And get mad at China. Why is Fauci never mad at China? He should be f- furious. Yeah, it it um, it does. It, it even it raises even more questions about um, what sort of relationship, existing relationship he had, and how important that relationship was with scientists in China, with that lab in China, um, that he's so defensive about it. Right, he's and so we allow the WHO, we allow China to yeah. pick the head of the WHO, who ends up being 
uh, a sycophant to China and was absolutely no help at the time. Who knew that it mattered who was the head of the WHO? But Bush was president back then. Seemed to mean a lot to China. So he goes, oh, what, what could go wrong? We're all on the same page. Stop the next disease. Stop the next scurvy. Stop the next malaria attack. Why couldn't well, you know what's political about that? Now we know everything's political about that. And if and if you really are worried about uh, conspiracy theories and falsehoods, you know, worming around the internet or whatever, then the more open you are about it, the less of that you have to contend with. When we come back, I want to get Charlie Hurt's take on the beginning. What I think of the 2024 Republican push for the nomination. We saw some of these shadow boxing that took place over the weekend. Who might have uh, drew some blood? Don't move. Brian Kilmeade Show. Coming to you on a need-to-know basis, because, man, do you need to know. It's Brian Kilmeade. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. First Lady Joe Biden said in an interview that she maintains a good balance in the types of advice she offers President Biden. But it's mostly, hold on to the railing. Uh, that was uh, a moderately funny joke from SNL, but that's <laughs> to, for them to go at Joe Biden is significant. Charlie Hurd is here. Uh, Charlie, pretty much it's, it's, a, it's a fait accompli. He's going to run. There was a story in Politico that has a headline, what about Gore and Hillary Clinton together? But there's no, <laughs> subs- there was no substance to it. They just yeah. basically write it to give Biden something to write about. For the most part, the drama was on the right. Yeah. At CPAC, it's, you know, it's Trump pack. He's got 62% of the straw vote and some unheard of guy. And then yeah. Nikki Haley, he was not invited to the club for growth, which they say is much uh, moderate. And he's beginning to take some incoming. And reportedly, he wants as many people in as possible. It gives him a better chance. Where do you stand? Um, well, I think he's right about that. I think that uh, the more people that do get in, um, uh, you know, and obviously it splinters the vote, uh, the, the opposition. You're going to, you know, the only way you'll ever take him on is if there is only one non-Trump candidate. And but even then, I, I'm sort of doubtful that that. Uh, and, and actually, I, I, to finish that, I, I think it's doubtful that that a non, you know, the, the non-Trump candidate beats Trump in the primary. Um but uh, uh, w- with one caveat, that's assuming he runs the campaign the way he should run the campaign, which is to focus on the future and to talk about all of the issues. And I thought he did a very good job at the C- in the CSPAC. Uh, uh, it went C- over two C-SPAC hours, so just about. Oh my! It was I was it was exhausting. And the guy, you got the guy's got energy still. I it's just mind blowing to me. I don't know how anybody can do that. But anyway, and, and he was very, very uh, – obviously, it was a friendly crowd. It, it's one of his best crowds, um, but, and he was really energized by it. But you know, the, the, the theme is the old theme. It's America first. But he did uh, – but, but he talked about these issues. And, and you know, one of my favorite things that he talked about was – and he's so good at doing these word pictures. And he was talking about um, how crazy it is in this country that we have veterans – Homeless veterans who are lying on the sidewalk with their face against the concrete. Meanwhile, American taxpayers are footing the bill to put illegal aliens up, flying them around the country, and then putting them up in hotel rooms, in fancy hotels. It's and and, yeah. and it's it, it, you know that you know as long when he's talking about things like that, it is it, you know he's unbeatable. When he talks, when, if, if he gets stuck talking about himself or his own grievances. 
Um, I, it's not that I, that yeah. he that, that he's not that he's wrong about it. It's that it's just not Nobody effective. Cares. Nobody, yeah. you're not going to win Let anybody. Me ask you, Charlie, you probably have 20 things that are bothering you right now, but you don't walk around telling your friends everything that's bothering you. You have to weather like Charlie is a he's a black cloud. Right. Uh, I got to stay away. But they don't they feel just the opposite. By the way, you keep your problems to yourself, and I appreciate that. Here's Mike Pompeo. If you only knew, right? If I only knew. Uh, cut 12. We are 31 trillion dollars in the hole. We've got to begin to grow the economy, build it back with lower taxes. And when we do that and grow our economy, we'll get it right back right. It's going to take a true conservative leader, Shannon. Are you saying that President Trump wasn't a true conservative leader? Six trillion dollars more in debt. Uh, that's, nev- that's never the right direction for the country. So that's when Nikki Haley said something similar to we've got to get, uh, get control of spending. And basically, President Trump hasn't done that. Yeah, well, How do and- you feel about that? Uh, well, obviously, Pompeo is exactly right about that. I mean, spending is, at the end of the day, the most important thing. But uh, and 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 we have to and we have to start now uh, with Congress, uh, you know, doing something about that. But uh, you know, Donald Trump never ran as a um, a, as a, a strict fiscal conservative. Right. Um, so and he was great at debt. <laughs> huh? Yeah, he loved debt. His whole life is built around debt. And and so, I, you know, while, you know, principally, I don't agree with that and I didn't agree with it in 2016, I I give credit to the guy. He never claimed to be anything else. Do you believe that DeSantis, uh, he's going to wait for the Florida legislation to get through? Do you think he's legitimate number two? Yeah. If Trump is number one right now, do you think DeSantis is number two? Yeah. Well, without a doubt. Uh, No, I, I... He's the only other person out there that could possibly uh, take him on. But but also, you know, just to finish that other thing about the fiscal conservative, we've been voting for fiscal conservatives for decades. We have thirty one trillion dollars in debt. We had twenty four trillion when when Trump came in in debt. Um, And that's all by fiscal conservatives, you know, voting for fiscal conservatives. So it's not just one. But it's just interesting. They take aim at each other. Let's see if they can keep it friendly. They're working on some nicknames oh, no, for DeSantis. I no, don't think not. so. That no, uh, makes it fun. fun. Uh, Charlie Hurt, thanks so much. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Uh, we're going to be on the road in Tampa on Wednesday. Find out where to see us on Fox and Friends and then Brian Kilmeade Radio Show. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.